I want to talk to you this morning about the new covenant kingdom. We're going to continue. This is actually part two. And so I'm going to begin in 1 Corinthians 15. As you're, if you will, turning your Bibles there, I'm going to begin by just acknowledging and referencing a few other scriptures. Um, first of all, Ephesians chapter two tells us very clearly that there are two kingdoms. There is the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. This is affirmed in Ephesians chapter 6, that there are these two kingdoms. And so we're familiar with a lot of kingdoms in the world, um, if you will, countries, sovereign powers, the United States, Britain, um, Germany, Russia. You know, we, we see countries that we understand are kingdoms. But primarily, there's only two. There's the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. The kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. And the only way a person can move from the kingdom of darkness or the kingdom of Satan into the kingdom of God is by what the Bible calls the new birth. You must be born again. And if you're not born again, you will not see the kingdom of God. You will not inherit the kingdom of God if you are not born again. And so just because somebody's good, just because somebody favors God, just because somebody favors the morals of God, that does not mean they're a part of the kingdom of God. You must be born again or you're not in God's kingdom. And I would say that there's a lot of people very, very religious towards God, but have not much knowledge of God. And so I ask you to really search your heart to make sure you are truly born again. And the Spirit of God lives in you. We're going to see one element of that, um, the evidence of a person who's in the kingdom of God. And this just one, you know, another aspect would be the witness of the Holy Spirit in your life, bearing witness that you are a child of God. Romans chapter 8. But we're going to see another one this morning. And so Ephesians says there's two kingdoms. And John chapter 3, Jesus tells us if you want to see the kingdom of God or be in the kingdom of God, you must be born again. And so that is extremely important. Now, I want you to go with me to Romans chapter 5. Well, I'm sorry, let's stay in 1 Corinthians 15, and let's read through this first. And in Romans 15, the Bible teaches us in chapter 40, in verse 44, 1 Corinthians 15, it talks about this body of corruption. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. And so it is written, the first man, Adam, was made a living soul. The last Adam was made a quickening spirit. And I just want you to see this. There are two men that are presented here. The first Adam and the last Adam. The the earthly Adam and the heavenly Adam. I just want you to see the two men that's described here. Verse 47, the first man is of the earth, earthy. The second man is the Lord from heaven. As is the earthy, such are they also that are earthy. And as is the heavenly, such are they also that are heavenly. And as we have borne the image of the earthy, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly. If you're in the first Adam, you are under the wrath of God and you bear the image of that Adam. You have broken the law of God. You have failed to keep what is holy and right in the eyes of God. 
You might be better than your father Adam, but you're just still a sinner under the wrath of God. And you bear the image of that earthy Adam. But there's a second or a last Adam, and that is Jesus Christ, and he is the Lord from heaven. And as you are born again, now you begin to bear the image or bear that which is of the heavenly Adam, the heavenly Jesus. And just as we are born as men and women, and we are the descendants of that earthly Adam, it is his nature in us that causes us to do what we do. We sin because we're sinners. That's the nature of Adam in us. And so when we're born again, the life of Jesus comes into us. And now by nature, we have a new life. And we will begin to manifest that new life of Jesus Christ through us. And we are going to bear the image of this heavenly Jesus. We're going to be given incorruptible, immortal bodies of flesh and bone, not flesh and blood. It is sown in, in corruption, it is raised in incorruption. And, a, and a Corinthians will go on to talk about the rapture of the church and the bodies being raised incorruptible, which is a beautiful truth that we have. In Romans chapter 5, if you would go back there and notice this again, the two Adams are talked about. In Romans chapter 5, the Bible t- teaches us in verse 19 or verse 18, Therefore, as by the offense of one, judgment came upon all men to condemnation, even so by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. So because one man offended, that was the earthy Adam, then judgment came upon all men. By that one man and his offense... Every person born of him is condemned to die. That is why it's necessary Jesus Christ was born of a virgin. Not just born of a young woman. But he was born of a virgin. Because he is not the descendant of the earthy Adam. But he's fully human. And so the Bible says that just as the first Adam offended God. And condemned all of his descendants. The second Adam, or the last Adam, Jesus Christ, was perfect in everything he did and fulfilled everything that the Father demanded or desired. And therefore, we are justified in this one. Now remember, to get into this justification, you must be born again. And then he tells us in, in verse 19, For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. And praise God for that hope. Now, when we have been made righteous, something happened to us. We were made something. It wasn't the fact that God just now, okay, I'm going to tolerate sinners. But no, he makes us something. He makes us righteous and holy. Anyone who is born again is a saint. We're the saints of God. In Ephesians chapter 2, the Bible even speaks of us in this light. If you would notice in verse 6, it says that he has raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And so that's where we are right now for everyone that's born again. We are seated with Christ in heavenly places. Now, when you're born again, you know this. This is a reality in your life. 
And so there is something that happens as a result of being seated with Jesus Christ in heavenly places, which refers back to chapter 1 about having authority and power and being able to see the things that God intends for us as his inheritance. And then if you would notice in chapter the end of chapter 2 and into chapter 3 that we become this. He says in verse 20, or, or verse 19, Now therefore, you are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom... All the building, fitly framed together, grows unto a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are builded together for a habitation of God through the Spirit. Now, if that's really happened to our life, then something dramatic has happened to our life. We become the habitation of God by the Holy Spirit. This is, this is glorious and it's grand. And chapter three talks about this mystery and the fellowship of the church and how it shows the wisdom of God, the principalities and powers. But I want you to go here with me because in first Corinthians chapter 15, he talks of us becoming, um, after the image of the heavenly man. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul refers to us as being new creations in Christ Jesus. In 2 Corinthians 5, Paul even says that we're not to refer to each other as by the flesh anymore. We don't judge each other by the flesh anymore because that's not who we are anymore. We are the saints of God. And so we're new creations in Christ Jesus. We are a heavenly people in a natural world. We live here, but we're not of here. We have been transplanted from this world and its kingdom into the kingdom of God and in his world. And in a way, we really are aliens on this planet. The Bible says so many times, this is not our home. This is not our citizenship. Our home is in heaven. And so if if this is not our home and we're in the world, but we're not of the world, then we're somewhat of an alien in the world. And we don't belong here. And it doesn't want us here. And so there is an attack of this world and its kingdom against your king. And that should affect you. If he is your king, that should affect you. But you see, the tragedy is that multitudes of people go to church week after week after week and do a religious duty, but they're never affected for the king. Their life is rarely ever affected or changed or doing anything for the benefit of the king. And so you have to ask the question, are you really a citizen of his kingdom if you are not fighting for the king? Because if you're a citizen of the kingdom and he is your king, you will fight for him and his kingdom is under attack here. I'm not talking about being a Republican or a Democrat. Those are carnal things and they're basically both the same anyway. I'm talking about being a servant and an ambassador of the Lord Jesus Christ in this world every moment and every day of my life. That I am engaged for the king. That's why the Bible says we are soldiers of Jesus Christ. Now people that are born again truly are. 
They recognize this. They're made that. It's, it's not, they were enlisted when they surrendered to Jesus Christ and, and the great sergeant, the Holy Spirit put them in active duty. And so your life's not your own. You go to the, you go to army. You go to the you go to the military, right? You go to the military and you tell the sergeant, "Well, you know what? I, I, that's not really my calling. That's not something I really want to do. I, I know that we should get up every morning at four thirty and be ready for our run at five o'clock and be in line and fall in and fall. But that really doesn't suit me. But we do that to Jesus." Because he's not really our king. And we're not really in his kingdom. Because this king demands your life. He bought it with his blood. And so people that can live a casual type of Christianity, we need to search our hearts to make sure that we're really in the new covenant. And the new covenant king in his life is the thing that is really governing me, you know. And so duty and the call of duty and the responsibility of duty and the responsibility of soldiers. Hey, the kingdom is first. The kingdom is first. The king is first. And so Jesus tells us about this in the book of John chapter 8. And I would like for you to read this. These are Jesus's words. And so this is the new covenant kingdom. And in John chapter 8, we first see the new covenant king. And this new covenant king in John chapter 8 verse 23 makes this statement kind of about the alien type thing. Jesus was truly an alien. He came from another world. And he said to them, you are from beneath. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. That's the new covenant king. And then it goes on in John chapter 18 when Jesus is standing trial before the rulers of, of that day, which were the subjects of the kingdom of hell, right? There's only two kingdoms. And so in John 18 verse 36, Jesus makes this incredible statement. My kingdom is not of this world. So first of all, he said in chapter 8, speaking of himself, I am not of this world. Now he says in chapter 18 about his kingdom, he said, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now is my kingdom not from here. Jesus' servants fight. Jesus' servants are engaged for the benefit of his kingdom. And then if you would back up to John 17 and see this in verse 6. This is Jesus' prayer. And he says this about his people. I have manifested your name to the men. Which you gave me out of the world. Thine they were and thou gave them to me. And they have kept your word. Verse 9. I pray for them. I pray not for the world, but for them which you have given me. For they are thine. And he says in verse 14. 
I have given them your word. And the world has hated them because they are not of the world. Even as I am not of the world. So do you understand? Now, you don't have to like it. You don't even have to do it. But do you understand that the new covenant king is not of this world? And do you understand that the new covenant kingdom is not of this world? And do you understand that Jesus says emphatically without exception that the servants who are mine that the father has given me are not of this world. I've made them something and they fight for me. They serve me. They are engaged for me because I have put my spirit and my life in them. And this kingdom is marching through the earth. I direct it. I direct its movement. And so we have the, 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 the typology of that in the natural world. As I mentioned a moment ago when we see our military and we see our, our soldiers and we see the discipline and the demand and the commitment that is, that is necessary from a soldier. Hey, um, hey Sarge, we got some family coming into town this weekend. I can't show up for, for drills. No worries. No worries. Hey, Jesus, I can't show up for this. I can't show up for that. I can't do this. I can't do that. I'm not called to that. That doesn't suit me. Jesus, no worries. I'm just so glad you accepted me. I'm just so glad you believe me. No, that's not the attitude of the king. And that's not the attitude of the kingdom. And that is not the expectation of the servants of the kingdom. I am the king. I am the Lord. And we are glad that he is. And so we are engaged in this by the spirit of Christ that has come into our life. And it is the most beautiful thing that God has done in our life. And I pray that you will see that. Now, this is a very important scripture in Galatians chapter 6. I would like for you to see it. Because I think it is extraordinary. And and I want you to understand Paul's own words. Because this is really the attitude. And the the longing and and the joy. Of those who get to serve the king. And Paul says this in Galatians 6. Verse 14. But God forbid that I should glory. Save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. By whom the world is crucified to me and I unto the world. So there it is again. The way that you get to exit the world and come into the kingdom is through the cross of Jesus Christ. That's the way you exit the world. That is the new birth. Where you identify with him in his death, burial, and resurrection. And if indeed you've died with him, then you have also been risen with him to new life. And so Paul rejoices in this. I glory in the cross of Jesus Christ. And he doesn't say by it. He says by whom? It's it's not this magical power of a cross. It's this person who died on it that's made the difference. 
It's this Jesus through his cross has delivered me from the world. And I'm no longer a part of this kingdom that is against the kingdom of God. Now I'm in the kingdom of God and I'm against this kingdom. And that is what God has done for my life. Paul says, I rejoice in this. I glory in this. For in Jesus Christ, neither circumcision avails anything nor uncircumcision. And as many as walk according to this rule, peace be on them and mercy and upon the Israel of God. From henceforth, let no man trouble me, for I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. And the word marks there symbolizes the, the, the scars and the wounds of a soldier who's a part of this kingdom, who's done battle and has faced many things for the cause of his king that he loves so much. And so in Colossians chapter 2, if you would quickly refer to this with me, I guess I would start in chapter 1 of Colossians and he says, this is, this is what he's done through the cross. He said in verse 12, giving thanks to the Father which has made us qualified to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. Who has delivered us from the power of darkness and has translated us. Into the kingdom of his dear son. He's not going to. He has. And when you come into the kingdom of his son. We've read it. What Jesus expects in John 17. And John 18. We understand the expectation of the king. In whom we have redemption through his blood. Even the forgiveness of sins. So that's what he's done. And then in Colossians 2. He goes into this more. And he says this in verse 11. Or verse 10, you are complete in him, which is the head of all principality and power, in whom also you are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, and putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. That's the cross of Jesus and what he did on the cross. Through his circumcision, your body of sin was circumcised, buried with him in baptism, wherein also you are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God, who has raised him from the dead. And you being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, has he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. Praise God. This is what he's able to do through the cross. Blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, that is the law, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross, and having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. And that's what he did for us through the cross. And that's why Paul glories in the cross of Jesus Christ. Because it's by him I have been translated out of this kingdom of death and darkness into the kingdom of light and life. And he rejoices in Jesus Christ and all that God has done. Through the cross of Jesus, we were atoned for by the blood of Jesus. Death was met, confronted, and by death, Jesus defeated death. He crushed the power of Satan's kingdom. He made a new race of people. The Holy Spirit was sent into the world to indwell man. He removed every hindrance in us that kept us from coming to God. He perfected and sanctified us. 
once and for all. He removed and forgave us of our sins, never to remember them again. He opened the way for us to live in the presence of God. Through the cross of Jesus, it gave a holy, just, and righteous God the legal rights to redeem the sinner and make them his sons and daughters. It's the legal rights of God to be able to do that. His own legal rights and his demands of justice were complete through that. But let me say this as I bring this to a close this morning. The cross is much more than an event. And I want to go back to the soldiering. I want to go back to the citizens of the kingdom who fight for the king. Because the the cross is much more than an event that happened 2,000 years ago. It is the expression of a nature that is only possessed by God. And to miss that is to miss everything. Because honestly, that's who we're desiring to be like, right? The one who died on the cross, right? I'm asking you. You're here today because you want to be like the one that died on the cross. You want to be conformed to his image. That means you're being conformed not to an event where you give up your rights for God, but you're being conformed to the character of a person who would do that. And we do not naturally do that. But God does. That's what disturbs you. That's what runs your life. That's what gets you out of bed. That's what causes you to be devoted to the kingdom of God. That's what makes you tithe and give offerings. It's because that nature of the cross is at work in you. And when that nature is not in you, that's why you don't have to tithe and give offerings or go to prayer meetings or go to church or don't do anything you don't feel like doing. Because the nature of that one who demonstrated and manifested the cross life is really not at work in me. That doesn't mean any of us exemplify this perfectly. We don't. But this is what we're being conformed to. And it wrecks your old life. It wrecks it. You're a new creature in Jesus Christ. And so the principle of the cross is more than abstaining from offensive moral acts. The principle of the cross is so much more than not getting drunk or lying or stealing or cheating or watching pornography. It is the power by which you love your enemies. It is the power by which you resist temptation. It is the power by which you forgive the church. It is the power and the ability to respond godly and triumphantly. This is the power of the character of the one who died on the cross. The cross is an expression not of just where a righteous man died. It is the expression of a nature that is not found anywhere else on earth. The nature of God is found in the man on the cross, 
Man's ways are not God's ways. Man would never lay his life down for his enemies. Just see how he acts when he's been offended or persecuted. I know how I do. Watch the man if he has authority to act and see what he does. And it will rarely be like God. God lays his life down. The cross is the expression manifested of the heart of God and his love. There in the cross is the expression of forgiveness, help, hope, the righting of wrongs, and making peace with enemies. It's the nature of God that we are being conformed to. And when we come to Jesus Christ, that is what we are desiring for God to make us and for us to be. The cross produces extreme intelligence. Extreme intelligence. And I want you to understand this because religion does not. There is intelligence in religion. But it's not spiritual intelligence. It's intellectual intelligence. And it always misses the cross life. Always misses it. The greatest damage that's been done in the house of God has been done by the religious in the house of God. It has not been done by the life of the cross in the believer. It has been done by religion. We've all been guilty of that. We've all struck the body in ways that we regret and we repent of and we hope that we would never do again. Many people in religion do not understand why the enemy seems to always triumph over them. Many in religion do not understand their depression. They do not understand their despair. They do not understand the coldness of their heart. They do not understand how uncomfortable or lackadaisical or sleepy their spiritual life is. They don't understand these things and they certainly don't know how to really change that. They don't understand how the enemy gets an upper hand upon them. They don't understand how one day they're soaring so high spiritually and the next day they're down in the dumps spiritually. They don't understand it. It's the roller coaster of life. All they can do is, I wish I could get off of this. I'm so tired of it. I'm so frustrated of it. They don't understand how the enemy has been working up to this In order to get them in the end, he has been maneuvering and they reply, if only I had seen this coming. The tragic story of failure, ineffectiveness, reverse life, satanic triumphs because of weakness. Believers beaten, floored, broken because the situation was just too much for them. What is wrong? What is wrong? I wanted to read a statement from Tozer. Do not let any of the things of the world or past mistakes paralyze your hearts. I believe there are Christians who have allowed some of their past mistakes to paralyze them. You were so bright and cheerful in your spiritual life once. And then you made some tragic mistake or had something happen to you. You got out of it somehow and prayed and wept your way out of it. But it did something to you. And now you cannot defeat it. Past wrongs that have been done to you, past failures, times you thought you were going to win and did not, or present sins or discouragement. These things are not mental at all. They are deeper than that. And they prevent us from believing. I most urgently exhort you, and I trust God Almighty to deliver you, to sponge that out of your spirit, to sponge that out of your heart. 
so that you are not hindered by unbelief. If we could shake off our sophistication, our pseudo-learning, and the cheap crust of unbelief that is over us, we could hear him say, I am that I am, and I am with you. I am on your side. My son died for you, and hell cannot take you out of my hands. You are made for my glory. I formed you for myself to praise me. If only you will believe. I will give you waters in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. I will give drink to my people, my chosen. I will do these things for you. An element of the supernatural enters here. Nature says it cannot be. And nature is right. But God steps in and says, I am that I am. And it can be. And God is right. I cannot win against my enemies. But God says, I will be an enemy to your enemies. And an adversary to your adversaries. If we will unite our hearts and intentions to dare to believe it, we will see God begin to move in great strength and great power. We will see coming down from heaven that which we so desperately struggled to bring in from the outside. We will see the great God do it, and then it will not be said, this man did it or that woman did it. But we will all say together, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit saith the Lord of hosts. Because one of the beautiful things that comes in this intelligence of the cross is we have a king who fights. He doesn't just send us into battle. He leads us into battle. He's already assured us of victory and we cannot be defeated. Who wouldn't want to fight in this glorious war? Who wouldn't want to enlist and give their all for the king of glory? That's the extreme intelligence. And so the cross, the nature The principle of the cross, the manifestation of God in the cross. And that's what we're being conformed to begins to hold us and move us. And that intelligence comes through. It's a spiritual intelligence. It's spiritual. The power of that cross that Paul was celebrating works its way out. in a believer who knows how to receive and live by grace. And they've stopped sweating and struggling. They've entered in to rest. They've learned how to rise by being low. They've learned how to be strong by being weak. They've learned how to be joyful and have a peace that passes all understanding. They've learned how to be first by being last. That's what the cross taught them. That's what entering into this new covenant kingdom has taught them. And the last thing I would say about the cross is it is extreme delight. Extreme delight. It is the joyful life. It is the life of celebration. It is the life of peace, the life of rest. That's why Paul could rejoice in it because his whole life as a religious man was a life of struggle. A life of disciplines and a life of duty and a life of obedience that could never quite achieve what God wanted. And Paul or Saul of Tarsus knew it. He could never say, I'm as righteous as God through the law. He could only say that as touching the law, I was as good as everybody else. And that's not good enough. 
And so when he came to the understanding of the one who died on the cross and what it meant to him, he had joy unspeakable and full of glory. He never looked back, never turned back, never wanted back. He counted everything that he had ever gained and ever done and all of the awards and accolades and fame and fortune that he had ever received from that life before Jesus was comparable as dung to have in Jesus Christ. But religion can't see that. But when you've gone through the cross, you do. And it produces extreme delight. The cross of Jesus is not only the proof of God's love for you. But in the cross of Jesus Christ, he is showing us how beautiful his father is. That's the king who fights. Because he expects us to be engaged for him. Just like he was engaged for his father. And the testimony of Jesus from Gethsemane to the false trials to the march up to the top of Calvary is my father is beautiful and he's worthy of my life. And I am not going to tell my father this is just not a good day for a crucifixion. But I will go to that cross and show the world how beautiful you truly are. And that is the beauty and the blessing of the cross. Jesus displays the infinite value and the worth of his father. And what good is redemption or heaven if God is not all satisfying? But Jesus shows us that the father is. He has found the hidden treasure. He has found perfect contentment. He has found life, joy, peace, and freedom. By what emotion will you show these inconceivable benefits? I'll tell you what you'll do. You'll dance. You'll shout. You'll praise. You'll pray. You'll worship. You'll rejoice. You can't help it. Because you've seen it. I close with this. Again, a writing from Tozer. The great work which Jesus did in his cross was never intended to make anybody miserable. Yet there are multitudes that are miserable after trust in the Lord. Miserable over the sin question in their lives. And the number is growing. Some people think that to become more spiritual, we must become more intense and tied up and occupied with this whole matter of the spiritual life. And really, they are the most unbearable people. They rarely have any converts. They rarely have any disciples. The joy has gone out of them. I am certain of this, that nothing will ever come to you by the Holy Spirit that will make you miserable. And nothing that the Holy Spirit calls you to do or obey will make you miserable. It may not be easy, but it will not be miserable. There is something wrong if a Christian is miserable on spiritual matters. And it is either failure to apprehend the one great absolute reality that the victory was God's and that he won it in Christ fully and finally. 
And we are not called to share it all in the battle, but in the spoil. Praise God. Father, I thank you in Jesus' name for the glory that you have expressed to us through your son and through his crucifixion. And that you have showed us, given us such a manifest demonstration of your heart and your love and your kindness and your mercy. And we are resolved to be your citizens. We say that we want to be conformed to the image of your son, Jesus Christ, who would die on a cross. We want to be citizens of your kingdom and we want to fight for you. We want to do successful and victorious battle against the powers of darkness that are in this world. We want to be engaged in your cause. We want our lives to be open toward you. And in life or in death, you are the Lord. You're the judge of the quick and the dead. And to you is all of the glory. And whatsoever we do, that we do it to the glory of God. I thank you for the access, the exit you've given us from this world into your kingdom through the offering of the body of your son, Jesus Christ. And we confess to you this morning our love for you. And we adore you. And we long to follow you, Father, in this world, being in it, but not of it. And not being like the people of this world. Lord, we would be a merciful people, a loving people, kind people, gracious people, helpful. And that the world would see that, that image of Jesus in us, that they would see that. Receive your glory today. Father, in our church service today, in our gathering today, the people that are going to come and the people that will come with needs. We desire for the gifts of the Holy Spirit to move because you're the only one that can touch a life and heal it. And you've given us gifts to benefit everybody else. Move through our life. Move through us, Father, in the name of Jesus. Lord, I pray your blessings upon the people today. Reward them richly. And, Father, give them spiritual intelligence, spiritual understanding on how to win, how to rest how to believe, how to access your presence. In Jesus' name.